Federal Chief Information Officer Claire Martorana's time before the House Oversight and Reform Subcommittee on Government Operations last week lacked many of the trite lines of questioning that usually come with these federal IT hearings. What we did learn from the hearing, though, puts OMB and the Office of the Federal CIO on record to produce public, transparent metrics as it delivers on promises in fiscal 2023. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller covers what we should expect from Martorana's office over these next six months. And Jason, let's start at the beginning. What about these metrics that they're on record to produce? Three metrics that I think OMB is really focusing on, cybersecurity, customer experience, and just specifically website metrics. Now, none of them are surprising, Tom. In fact, Federal CIO Martorana said in her written testimony that these will be out in early 2023. Now, what does that mean? Fiscal or calendar year 2023, we're not really sure, but we will be watching. Now, as far as the cyber metrics, Tom, OMB came under a lot of criticism by the subcommittee at the last FATARA hearing, the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, back in, in July, for sunsetting some of those cyber metrics that the Trump administration had used. There was a lot of complaints that the FISMA scores under the FATARA scorecard, a lot of acronyms there, Tom, I know, were, were bad across the board because the, the committee says and GAO says they had no metrics that, that OMB uh, provided them. So Mark Toronto shed a little light on what comes next for cybermetrics. We are consistently looking at the data that agencies are providing us and trying to figure out the best way that we can assess risk from that agency data set. And so we will constantly refine the data um, as we both deal with different threats as well as um, make informed different and informed decisions and also make progress. So I think that we will never have a single set of data that will accurately reflect the threat environment that we're dealing in, but we will continually refine that. Federal CIO Martana says she wants to reduce the burden on agencies and how they collect cyber data and how OMB receives it. Right now, it's too much of a manual process. And she says better tools will lead to better data because currently the data is not as clean as it should be. Now, Thomas, for those other metrics, Mark Toronto says she's looking at ways they can measure agencies' digital efforts and can look forward to releasing those metrics again with GSA later in 2023. Now, she says a website is often how individuals first interact with the agencies, so it's important to track those metrics across public-facing websites and evaluate whether they're meeting the public's expectations around things like security, accessibility, design, and compatibility with mobile devices. Cybersecurity metrics, what were some of the other storylines that emerged in this hearing? No surprise here. A big one was cloud security, specifically the FedRAMP program, the Federal Risk Authorization Management Program. Subcommittee Chairman Jerry Connolly has been trying to codify the FedRAMP program for the last several years. His bill actually passed the House in January, but the Senate has not acted on it, and there's no sign that actually they will. But this concern that Connolly and others say is really the slowness of the FedRAMP program, getting cloud services through it to the final approval process. Martorana says OMB is working on this because FedRAMP isn't meeting the needs of small and innovative companies specifically. We have actually asked members of my team uh, to work collaboratively with GSA and the program team and really roll up our sleeves. We need to fix this to make sure that not only we are supporting the supply chain issues, making sure there's secure software development, but also making sure that we can um, meet the speed of the need of federal agencies to have some innovative technology available to them with the umbrella 
um, security of the FedRAMP um, seal of approval in a way. So I, I fully applaud that, and we are spending time on that in my office. Again, federal CIO Claire Monterano talking about FedRAMP. Tom, let me take a half a step back from the hearing for a second, because the FedRAMP program has consistently been looking for ways to improve the speed, but not lose any rigor of the program. And this has led to them developing things like the FedRAMP tailored process, as well as the FedRAMP process for low-impact systems. And Tom, just last week, FedRAMP issued its authorization boundary guidance, which is critical to helping cloud service providers and improve their security packages before they go to the Joint Authorization Board or the JAB. That committee, the House Oversight and Reform Subcommittee, has something to do with the Technology Modernization Fund. Did that come up at the hearing? Oh, of course it did, Tom, because that is still a hot topic. Remember, Jerry Connolly was uh, one of the big forces behind the TMF getting a billion dollars in the American Rescue Plan Act uh, a year ago in March. But the TMF, there's uh, growing concerns uh, across the board about what that billion dollars is being used for. And uh, the Republican members of the subcommittee actually brought this up with concerns that, hey, is this TMF being a slush fund because of changes OMB made to repayment requirements? Congressman Jody Heiss, ranking member of the subcommittee, actually asked pointed questions about whether the TMF is meeting both the spirit and intent of the underlying act that created the TMF, the Modernizing Government Technology Act. The focus of the TMF and the broader MGT, as we'll call it, was to modernize government IT systems. That meant doing away with the types of ancient systems that still run in uh, too many of our vital government programs. In addition, the tenet of the TMF uh, was that it would create an efficient cycle. But the Biden administration has opted for partial or even minimal reimbursements. I want to know why. Uh, It's also emphasizing cybersecurity and customer experience projects, which in and of themselves are fine but doing so rather than retiring old systems. So why is the administration doing this? We need answers. Again, Congressman Jody Heiss, ranking member of the subcommittee, asking questions that we hear a lot in the Senate side about whether or not there's enough oversight accountability for the TMF. Now, Marjorana didn't really have a good answer for Heiss. She did say the TMF program office has been growing. They're more focused on improving agency proposals and the outcomes from the investments that this money is being put to. They're adding a lot of technologists to the TMF staff to help agencies and to ensure that they're meeting the, the right needs. She did say the subcommittee should expect to see dramatically improved outcomes from TMF investments over the next year. Again, Tom, I think this is something we will definitely be watching as will the, the subcommittee. Well, as the CR grows nearer, I think a lot of vendors are urging agencies to go to the TMF to get money for projects the vendors would like to see them do. There are. And unfortunately, a lot of the vendors don't understand how the TMF actually works. Vendors have a misconception that there's this pot of money that they can get a part of. But really, the money goes to existing projects. So these have already been awarded. So I think that's one of the misconceptions that both OMB and really members of Congress like Jerry Connolly have to ensure they educate and, and ensure that the vendors and agencies grasp at how this works. As for the repayment issue, that has been a big deal. And that's been one of the big reasons why agencies have been less excited to submit proposals. But as soon as OMB released, kind of downplayed the, the repayment requirements, proving partial repayments or even very little repayment, 
that's when the flood of proposals did come in. Now, the midterms are looming, and so Congress is not going to be super active on specific things between now and then. But once that's over, what can we expect from the subcommittee, do you think? One of the big questions that came up during the subcommittee, which I thought was fascinating, was both quests by Jody Heiss as well as Jerry Connolly about kind of the federal CIO authorities. And not just Claremont Tirana, but really agency CIO authorities. And that has been a big part of the Fatara scorecard, too. But you know what, what Connolly and others from the subcommittee asked, specifically to Claire Martirana, what is your office's relationship with the OMB or the federal chief technology officer, the CTO? They want to know about how things are working together, how they're, what kind of working relationship do they have? How has their duties been more defined and delineated? And I think those are really important questions because, Tom, we've seen over the years that the CTO office really take on things like green government and take things like uh, quantum computing and AI. And we've seen the emergence of the U.S. Digital Service and whether or not that falls under the federal CIO or not, and that it, so far it hasn't, and, and there's a lot of concern whether it should or shouldn't. So I think all of these are really smart questions from the subcommittee asking for more accountability, not just from Claire Martirana, but from all these technology offices within OMB itself. Remember, Tom, we have at least four different offices focusing on cybersecurity. And, and that in and of itself can create some challenges across the government. So I think asking these questions is important. So I think that is something that I will be watching closely to see what answers, if you will, the subcommittee gets from OMB. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And check out his latest reporter's notebook. It's now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. 
So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. 
Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere. 
but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.